I can't help but laugh every time I watch that. And that little abridged clip of it uh, is still funny. Um, that I've, I watched every episode of the Andy Griffith Show, oh my word, dozens of times probably now. Uh, but when I, I look at that, I, I titled the sermon this morning, and it'll become clear why. I entitled it A Cut Flower Generation. And Cut Flower Generation. And I thought another way to maybe title the sermon this morning was How Andy Griffith Killed America. And you might smirk at that. But I think what we had, if we're not careful, is we have a Christian ethic without a reason for doing it. We just simply did it because it was right. But we didn't have a relationship that was vibrant with the Lord Jesus Christ that drove us to a changed life. And I think that's the danger, even in a show like that, and it wasn't all moral. Um, how many of you know the show? Anybody here watch it before? Okay. Um, the Duck Pond wasn't a moral place to go, in case you've watched the show before. Um, the... The reality of the fact is they were still teaching some good moral principles, but they were not rooted to Christianity. It wasn't because the Bible tells us so. When you have a generation or a society or a church that is cut off from its root, from its source, it is destined to die. Few people noted it, but in January 1st of this year, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of no-fault divorce in our nation. 50 years ago, the then California governor, Ronald Reagan, signed into law no-fault divorce. And from that point on, throughout the 70s and the 80s, no-fault divorce became the staple of every state's law. And in our text in Mark, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to be addressing the subject of what Jesus says about divorce, and the reality is it's a painful thing, and many people, even in this room, have gone through it. But when we get to this place in our country that divorce is no longer a binding covenant, but a contract of convenience, we are fundamentally redefining what marriage is. And that's been 50 years ago. And now, just in the last several years, in 2015, Obergefell versus Hodges, the Supreme Court effectively redefined marriage for the United States and legalizing same-sex marriages in all 50 states. And I remember very clearly the day that that was announced. We were actually on vacation that weekend, and I was so grieved in my soul over the decisions that was made, but yet that decision was predicated on ones before that and ones before that and ones before that. Because when you cut a society off from its root, there is no hope but for it to die. Now just a few days ago, we've redefined marriage, and now just a few days ago uh, in Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, the 1964 Title VI that eliminates discrimination against sex based on sex, in other words, you can't discriminate based on sex, they've gone back in and under inserted now a new definition based upon the Supreme Court ruling that sex now applies, that word sex that was put in the law in 1964 now means transgender and same-sex attraction. And that kind of flew under the radar a little bit, but that happened just last week. And we are seeing our nation redefine fundamental things 
and redefine these. And we see that slippery slope as often is argued and almost mocked. But really what we see is we see a beautiful flower in the vase who has no hope of life unless it's connected to the root. I would say this this morning that the full implications of these laws and these decisions have yet to be felt in our country. And yet we are going to continue to hear about them. Now no longer can we determine gender by the creator's assigned biology, but it must be defined by choice and the desires of each individual. And that is a fluid choice that we can change our mind on. We were founded with an idea that all men are created equal. Someone came up to me afterwards and he said, well, pastor, everybody's not created equal. And I said, well, I agree, because if they were, all you guys would be as good looking as I am. But we're not all created equal. But we do understand that equal before the law. We thought that every man ought to have an equal standing before the law, and that all men are created, by, uh, they're created equal, and that they were endowed by the Creator with uh, unalienable rights. The idea is nobody could put any pressure on these rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How many of you this morning would say amen that God has given individual rights to people? And we could say amen to that, and we rejoice in that truth. Let me say this, this belief in individual freedom, if not rooted to something that makes us do what we should outside of, uh, without outside influence, results in the idea of an all-sovereign individual, that I get to determine truth for myself and nobody can tell me what to do. And both of those are errors on either side. To say that a tyrant must tell me everything or that no, I get to decide for myself what is true all the time. Both of those are grave errors and both end in tyranny and destruction, yea, even bondage. Now, if we have a hard time getting getting our head around the relativism of our day, it is no surprise because even those that are supporting the idea uh, of this, they're saying there's going to be problems to work out, quote unquote, problems to work out. You think? We have a lot of problems to work out. We're already seeing it in our sporting situation where the idea somehow or another of men dominating over women was supposed to be uh, ruled against and rightly so that he shouldn't have that. But now transgender or men who now claim to be women are entering in the sports arena and the ladies can't compete. And again, we've come full circle. And now you have the domination again. And it's interesting that this relativism, we can't seem to find any handles on it to control it or to set it straight, and it constantly grows and rolls out of control. And make no mistake, this is not the last we're going to hear of it. We see the firsthand rights of the all-sovereign individual usurping the rights of the whole. It's a dangerous precedent. This agenda will be continued to push forward, and it is incumbent upon every Christian to stand. Now, let me say this, and I want you to hear me well. Not just to stand with an angry spirit or a frustration, but to stand lovingly and boldly upon the Word of God as we proclaim the message that can change the hearts of men and ensure the health of a society. We must not find ourselves mocking or making light of people in their struggles. We must stand, though, even if we're accused of doing so. We live in a culture that is going to bring greater ridicule against people who stand on biblical marriage. 
And they're going to use terms like bigotry and hatred and all of these things to define it. Now, we must make sure we do not give them fodder for their accusations. But we must stand. Not because it's convenient, not because it's popular, but because we are connected to a root that tells us where to stand. So, in 1994, Elton Trueblood, a pastor, speaker, 1944, I said 94, 1944, he wrote a book entitled A Cut Flower Civilization, and he wrote this, he said, the terrible danger of our time is the fact that ours is a cut flower civilization. Beautiful as a cut flower may be, and as much as we may use our ingenuity to keep them looking fresh for a, for a while, they will eventually die. They die because they are severed from their sustaining roots. I brought these in this morning to remind you again. I mean, they're beautiful, aren't they? Beautiful flowers. We spend millions, yay, billions of dollars a year on giving people dead things. Millions and millions of dollars are made. And it grows, and you know, and I, I, I have learned that, um, just a tip guys, Kroger has really inexpensive flowers, all right? And uh, it's a great place to buy flowers. Very convenient on the way home too. Um, stop, get some flowers. They make these little packets of stuff. It's like the miracle grow, and you put it in the water and it sticks in there. Some of these will last for a week, week and a half. Change the water out, you can keep it going for a while. But here's the reality. You ignore it just for a little bit. These don't have any water in this vase. If we left them sit here overnight, They'd be in a mess because they're cut off from their root. They're destined to die. Now, some of you, you may know more than I do. I don't know if there's a way possible to reconnect that to a root. I wouldn't have any idea. That would be the only hope it would have is to be reconnected to the root that would give it light. Eldridge, uh, Elton Trueblood, when he wrote this book, he wrote it in 1944, and he described our society at that time as a cut flower generation. And I, I would love to sit down with the man today and have him read the newspaper and then tell me how he would describe our society today. You know, we can point, and I think often we do, at the barbarism. When we think of 9-11 and the attack on our country and we look at the barbarism of a radical Muslim faith and we speak of its barbarism and its cruelty and yet I would argue that they are simply a mirror of the West. They have a faith without ethics and we have ethics without faith. We live in a nation that holds to some kind of ethics. And I remember just early in ministry, when I first began ministry, I would hear people talking about traditional American values. What does that mean today? And again, ethics without faith. You see, our faith often moves us to the pole once every four years, but very little more. We are attempting to maintain our culture by a loyalty to a Christian ethic without a corresponding faith in the Christian religion that produced them. While in True Blood's day, the average man, he said, was not opposed to Christianity, he just ignored it. He wasn't opposed to it, he just ignored it. Now we live in a day where many oppose Christianity from without, and the church is ignoring it from within. It seems that good men are passively committed to truth while evil men are passionately committed to a lie. 
Maybe this is because lies promise immediate gain by immediate actions, while truth promises eventual gain by faithful labor. Now let us not lull ourselves into sleep and thinking this is only a new problem because it is not a new problem that has somehow just arrived on the scene with the internet, you know, that's caused all our problems. Social media is the problem. Now I will agree with you that there are great woes that it has brought as any technology can bring great destruction. Many, any technology can bring great benefit as well. It's not a technology problem. Let us not think that either that this is going to be answered by politics. But this has been going on to America for many generations, and now we are reaping the consequences. You know, how easy it is to make this a political argument in which the enemy is the other party and our hope is the next candidate. And that is a mistake the church has made far too often. We might also be tempted to point our finger and say, well, this is just a religious problem. If all the liberal denominations would stand on traditional values, we could restore our hope in America. And what I find is, too often, we're too comfortable looking out the window for the problem instead of looking in the mirror for the problem. We look away and say, well, there's the problem over there, and that's the problem over there, and that's the problem over there. And really, what I need to do is say the problem is right here. The cut flower illustration stands before us this morning as a testimony, yea, against our nation and in times against our own Christian walk. Our nation was never expressly a Christian nation in that we demanded everybody who came here to be a Christian. In reality, it was an incredible experiment, the idea of religious liberty, the idea that you could worship God by the dictates of your own conscience. And it's, it's amazing to see that religious liberty and its blessings that it gave us. I had the privilege of taking a tour of New England a few years ago and stood in Rhode Island where there was a charter given by the King of England and that charter declared there would be religious liberty there. And in that little state, the first Catholic church was planted. The first Jewish mosque or Jewish synagogue was set up. It was the first of many that weren't allowed in the other states at the time because there wasn't the religious liberty there. And it's a wonderful experiment in our nation, but, though, but let me make something clear. Our nation was not expressly Christian because we weren't forcing people to be Christians to come here. I will say that she was founded on clearly Christian principles and morality, and the Judeo-Christian ethic has woven itself through our society, and it's very clear by reading the writings of our forefathers and reading the writings that are on the monuments that we held highly those principles. When I say she is not expressly a Christian nation, it, to be so, she must demand allegiance of all citizens to the gospel. And yet Christianity is far too real and all-encompassing to demand allegiance of unwilling participants not how Christianity works. It never would. We clearly have the Christian principles that we were founded on and the morality that was there and these puritanical principles and morality were a blessing to our nation while they were here. And they are enshrined in our monuments and it is a travesty that we are forgetting them. It is a travesty that we do not know what it means that our nation is opened in prayer when Congress meets and yet schools can't open in prayer. That is a grief of my soul. 
We must return to a welcome acknowledgement that like it or not, it was a Christian ethic that brought around the greatest generation that our nation ever knew. And this great nation in which we live, we must at least teach these principles without shame and some historical honesty of where it came from. But not only are we a cut net flower nation, but we're a cut flower society. See, a society can only hold together by a mutual trust and a mutual code of morality. We can agree to disagree on many things, but we cannot just choose to change the rules of our society and the ethics upon which it is built and keep the house standing. You can't just walk away from the understanding of the rules and somehow another hope it's going to work. Imagine waking up tomorrow morning and then you just decide tomorrow morning that you like to drive on the other side of the road. And then you get a ticket for it and you take it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says no. We believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If it makes you happy to drive on the other side of the road, we want you to do it. Can you imagine the confusion and the destruction it would bring about? Our morals have become unfettered from any anchor, and they are destined to be crushed by the oncoming tide of relativism that we see sweeping our nation. And we cannot moralize anymore on laziness. We can't say anymore, that's lazy behavior, get up and work. We can't somehow or another say anything on sexuality or gluttony or drug abuse or disrespect for authority or make any absolute claims of right or wrong. We have severed ourselves from the root of the laws of God that were so implied in our society that we declared ourselves a nation under God. And our motto says, in God we trust. There is no way anymore to define what is sexually permissible without the boundaries of God's institution of marriage. We hear all of the frustration, and my heart grieves over any woman or child that is ever taken advantage of, and we hear all of this, and it grieves my soul that evil men get away with evil acts. So how can we make this some way that it might work for a fairness and a mutual benefit for a society if sexuality somehow or another could be put down, let's see, where one man and one woman married each other and committed to each other for life, and that is the only place for sex to take place? That could be a safe institution. Seemed like somebody should have written that in a book somewhere. And I hear the naysayers saying, well, yeah, but in marriages, there's still abuse. But far less than what we find today. And just because men pervert God's institutions do not mean they're not still the best institutions. Because here's the reality. There are moms and dads who make mistakes and are poor parents, but it doesn't mean we should get rid of parents. We can thank God for his institutions. Thank God for his wisdom behind it. Now, lest we look at our nation and climb too quickly on our moral high horse, it is make sure we understand it is because every person in this room, every premarital or extramarital act of every believer in this room has also contributed to the problem. And we must stand before God and confess our own sins, not just simply pointing out the window at a world that's living in moral relativism and not acknowledging our sins. Because until we're willing to say, I'm a sinner before God, and the only hope for me is not that I'm more moral than you, but I went to the cross of Calvary. That's the hope for you. Too often we set ourselves up as if somehow or another we haven't made the mistake They're the only ones that have made the mistake. 
You see, until we're willing to own our sin as such and bring them to the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, we are crippling our witness to a lost world. You see, the answer is not ridding society of immoral people, but calling all men to the acknowledgement that their immoral acts are destroying the fabric of our society, and the only hope of transformation is the Lord Jesus Christ. So well, I just don't know if that'll make a difference. It makes a difference in the one who believes. It makes a difference in that one who believes. We have the hope of a nation. A society is being torn at its fabric. So let's get a little closer to home. Cut flower churches. Churches that have been severed from the root. Churches that often look very beautiful on the outside and they have nice programs and good social agendas and they're they're laboring to make a difference, but in reality all they are is a dying flower because they have no attachment to the root. There's nothing that is giving life-sustaining strength. We're just as distracted by the world. We're just as enamored with this world's agenda and our hearts are not connected to the life-giving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Many mainline denominations today have turned from the historic faith. Many are denying the existence of hell, hell completely and buying into a moral revolution. Now, I can clearly applaud the good that many still do, but I must point again to the flower in the vase that if you do not hold to Scripture as the source of your existence, you will die. And this morning, if Shelby Bible Church is not connected to the Word of God, we will cease to be a church. It is the word of God that bursts life. Understand this. The church didn't create the gospel. The gospel created the church. The gospel is what makes us what we are. It is the word of God that gives us life. We are desperate to be relative in this world. And in that desperation, uh, we run from authoritative truth. We seem to want to be relative, and yet there is a cry for somebody to say, what is true anymore? I believe we as a believers and as Christians and as a church specifically, we must be willing to stand authoritatively on the truth and not bend to the winds of change. And it is not a convenient place to stand. Many claim, though, that we are stuck in the past. And without doubt, some churches are so comfortable in their moral high-rise that they will not engage the lost And I would argue this morning that those in the relative camp and those in the moral high-rise are equally at error. Because these over here that would be in relative and we would give in and redefine marriage even inside the church and even in the face of what Scripture says, and now anything goes and we're not going to call it sin anymore because we're just going to let God judge that. God has judged that, and God has told us where to stand But then the mistake over here is that we come on the other side of the argument and we just stand there and wag our finger at everybody. Here's the reality. What we need is a church that is willing to sit down with somebody who is in the quagmire of sin and show them that the only thing that saved us is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the only thing that will save them is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to have a willingness, maybe even like the church at Acts, to have people sitting next to us in church that don't look like us, that didn't have our background that are scarred by sin, yea, even bleeding still from the very sins they committed last night, but willing to say the hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we must stand on Scripture alone, not just the traditions of the church, not just a mama called daddy sent preacher, but a man who is rooted in the word of God. 
You see, the scriptures alone must become our life. They must become our life source. You see, it is the word of God that birthed this church 20 years ago, and it will be the word of God that gives life to this church today. And as your pastor this morning, it is my heart to oppose anything that keeps us from being a church of the book. And by the way, that means the relativism of our society, and it means the traditionalism of the church. And I'll oppose both sides, because we must be called to be people of the book. You see, it's not isolation that is going to preserve or be the call of the church, and it's not relativism that is the call of the church, but it is a Bible-centered walk that is the call of the church today. So then I come to the conclusion where we come even closer to home, and it's a cut flower Christian. Look, if you would, in John 15, we read it earlier, and this is where I want to bring us to. I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. See, a cut flower Christian is just like a cut flower society or a cut flower church. It looks good on the outside, but there's no life-giving root to it. It looks great, and we can keep it looking great for a while, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard believers saying, yeah, I know I didn't let you know, but there's some major things going wrong. And they're hurting underneath, and there's a brokenness. And let me say this morning, if you have walked away from the Lord, come home. There is life in the Word of God. There is hope in that relationship. You see, a cut flower Christian is one who looks the part, but has spent no time in the Word. It is one who looks the part, but prayer has become something we do in front of the television after we've taken a bite of food. We look the part, but our witness is ineffective and yea, non-existent. We seem to have no stamina in the midst of this world and in the midst of the onslaught of this world and our religion seems dry and powerless. Jesus said, I am the true vine. He's the only place that gets, gives us life. You see, Christ prepares us for the work and then in verse number two, he cleanses us for the work he purges us, and it's interesting that it's not the unfruitful branches that he purges, but it is the fruitful branches that he purges. He comes into those that are bearing fruit, and he begins to work on them that they might bring forth more fruit. He cleanses us in verse number three, now you are clean to the word that I have spoken unto you. You see, Christ is the source of all we do. He says in verse number four, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in, in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. And this is the line, for without me ye can do nothing. He didn't say you could do most things. He said you can do nothing. So often we get so wrapped up in programs and, and plans and what we're going to do and what we're going to accomplish. And all of those things are wonderful. Let me say this though, but any sermon preached without the word of God in prayer is a failure. Any program ran that is not connected to the root is a failure. Because without him, we can do nothing. I've told you this story before, and, but I'm reminded of it when I come here. I was in college, and this is a few years before... Susie and I were married, and I was leading a volunteer ministry in college at the time, and we had 
um, several uh, volunteer college students that worked with us, and then we went and worked with the teens in the afternoons on Saturdays, and Saturdays were a, uh, what my granddaddy used to say is a can to can't. You work from the time you can see to the time you can't see, and uh, we would work from sunup to sundown every Saturday, and we would get up, and I, I'd have to be in a meeting at 7, 7.15, and so I'd get up a little earlier, and I went into the chapel to pray that morning, and I was walking and praying, and I walked and prayed because I'd fall asleep if I sat down and prayed. And uh, so I was walking around trying to keep myself awake. And I had a list of things that were going to go on that day. And I, I thought, well, I got to lead singing in a couple of hours. And then I got to go and I'm preaching at that Bible club that afternoon. Then I got to meet with so-and-so this evening. And then I got that other appointment tonight. And I was thinking of all the things that were going to happen that day and all the work that had to happen. And I began to pray, God, help me do this and help me do this and help me do this and help me do this. And it was I mean, just as clear as I'm sitting here, it's as if the Holy Spirit kind of tapped me on the shoulder in the midst of my prayer time. He said, let me get it straight now. You need my help leading singing. You need my help preaching that sermon. You need my help with that counseling appointment you have. But you got everything else under control? And I remember being so convicted at that moment that I stopped where I stood and I, I took a deep breath and I held it. And I said, God, in just a minute, I got to breathe again. And without you, I can't do it. And I looked down at my feet and said, Lord, if I'm going to take another step in a minute, you've got to make it possible for me to do it. And I took that step and I said, thank you, Lord. For without him, we can do nothing. Not some things, we can do nothing. And too much of our Christianity is done without him. And that's why so much of it comes to nothing. We become a cut flower Christian. You see, head, in, head knowledge gives us information. Even some heart knowledge gives us inspiration. But hand knowledge is where it's gone to our head, it's entered our heart, and it's working its way out in our life. That's where incarnation is at. I don't want to settle with just information or even just inspiration, but let's make Christianity something that is incarnation. Something that moves us to act, moves us to be changed. You see, the mission of the church, and hear this well, the mission of the church is not to save a nation. The mission of the church is not to save a nation. The blessings of our nation is a byproduct of our mission, not the prime product. You see, the mission of the church is not to save a society, but the mission of the church is this week to reach one more soul with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be what God has called the church to be. You see, we cannot miss this. We cannot let this be something that sits in the back of their mind because if we as the church cease to do what only we can do, and that is help men and women and boys and girls find peace with God, then we cease to be the church. We've been given that message and the mission is very clear. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What is more, we are as only as strong as the individuals are connected with the word. See, we as a church cannot just say we're people of the book because 
the deacons love the Bible, or the pastor loves the Bible, or the, the brother Randy loves the Word of God, and he sings good music. That doesn't make us people of the book. What makes us people of the book is when every boy and girl in this room opens the Bible for themselves, and every teenager says, you know what, I'm going to turn the television off, put down the phone, turn off TikTok and every other app that I got, and read the Bible for a minute. Because I promise you it's far more important to know what's going on in heaven than it is what's going on around the world. And when every believer in this room would set down their anxiety for a few moments of the evening, instead of at 7 o'clock turning on the news to find out what crazy is going on, open the word of God and find the peace that passes understanding. Because we've got to be connected to the book. Because if we are not anchored, the storm tosses us far too much. Let me challenge you this morning. See, our main calling is not to help America be anything, but to help the church be the church. I read that quote a few days ago by John Piper, and it challenged my soul to its core. Our main job is not to help America be anything, but help the church be the church. Let God take care of human history. Let's take care of our mission. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. Well, we do thank you for the blessings of our nation. Lord, we thank you for the freedom we have to participate in this society, to vote, to stand and proclaim and let our voice be known. All of those things are wonderful blessings. But Lord, help us not take our eyes off our main goal, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, our personal walk with you. Holy Spirit of God, do that work. And we'll praise you for all that you do. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it.